irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Listening to Get Yourself the Job with Jennifer Hill only on LA Talk Radio. Well, happy Monday, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to Get Yourself the Job with Jennifer Hill. We hope that you had an amazing 4th of July weekend and that you're ready for some fireworks either tonight or tomorrow night. And today, to get you some fireworks on the job hunting start, I'm very excited to have with us the author of Work It, Get In, Get Notice, and Get Promoted, Denise Dudley. Denise is on a mission to help young professionals everywhere take charge of their careers and find meaningful employment in their ideal field of work. Dudley is also a professional trainer and keynote speaker, as well as a a business consultant and former CEO of SkillPath Seminars, the largest public training company in the world, which provides 18,000 seminars per year and has trained over 12 million people in the U.S., Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.K. Dudley speaks all over the world on a variety of topics, including management and supervision skills, leadership, assertiveness, communication, business writing, career readiness, and personal relationship. Denise thrives on people, animals, and lively audiences. You can find more about Denise on her website at denisedudley.com. So Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yes, I I love the concept of your book, and I think it's perfect timing because so many of our graduates have recently matriculated through different schools and programs in the month of June and are now about to go on the biggest adventure of their lives. What is the career that they were meant to get into? Yep, that's true. So tell me me a little bit about your journey. Well, my journey is, uh, well, in fact, I tell a lot of audiences, I work with so many young people, I work on campuses really all over the U.S., and I also work with high school students who aren't necessarily bound for college but are simply looking for their career jobs once they graduate from high school. And I I tell so many audiences that my personal journey was not a direct line of sight journey. I kind of bobbed and weaved and, and, and found things in my life that I never knew were headed my direction. And I think one of those, one of the reasons I talk about that in specific is that I really believe it's a good idea to keep your eyes open and to look for those opportunities because sometimes they aren't the thing you expected to come your direction and they may be the best possible thing that could have ever happened to you. So true. I was just sharing that with one of the alumni uh, at from UC Irvine where I accidentally graduated late because I was missing a class from high school. And at the time, I was furious with my university. How dare they? The nerve. I already walked and they won't give me my diploma. And yet it was the best miracle that happened in my career. And I'm sure we all have stories like that. It's amazing how that works with so many of us. It's true. Yeah, I think it's about embracing it. I think that's the important lesson, at least from my perspective, that I wish somebody had told me when I was 20 or 21 graduating college is that there are going to be instances or circumstances where you might get blindsided by a person, situation, or have an unexpected opportunity fall in your lap. And I think it's about embracing it all. I agree with you completely and keeping an open mind and just seeing what you can do to make whatever has happened the best possible outcome. So tell our listeners a little bit about your book. I would love to know kind of the story behind it and what it took for you to put it together and get it out there. 
Well, it's been a fun journey. I actually, I feel like I'm very fortunate to have come to this book from two different directions that have merged together to create the book. I've been teaching for a very, very long time adult learners. So I, of course, this company, Skillpath, that I founded and am the former CEO of is a huge company. And, and I literally started it in my basement and grew it to become really large. And so I've, I've had a lot of experience training adult learners and then also training the trainers who train adult learners. Obviously, if we do 18,000 seminars a year, I'm not doing those by myself. <laughs> Let's hope so, not. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very, very tired. <laughs> but I'd have a lot of frequent flyer miles, so that's the other side of it. But uh, at any rate, um, I, I've watched over the years working with management supervision classes, leadership, coaching classes. I've been able to observe and listen to managers and supervisors and CEOs when I go into work with people as a consultant. And I know over time what so many people have told me they're looking for in young professionals and people who have just graduated. They're looking for certain skills. They're looking for certain aptitudes. And a lot of times they don't, you know, they just don't recognize those in the people they're looking at. So young applicants come in and apply for jobs. And a lot of times little bits of tweaks, little tiny tweaks can help applicants to get a job they're looking for. And it's not even, it's, it's always being honest on your resume. It's always representing yourself thoroughly and honestly, but it may have to do with simply what you wear or how you respond to questions or, or how prepared you are when you get into that interview. So I've, I've listened from the side of what people want as employers, but because I'm doing so much work with young people, I also get to observe what young people, what young professionals graduating from high school or college don't know. And it's a lot of really basic, practical advice. This book I wrote to be so practical and so hands-on and so no-nonsense, no just no theory, no conjecture, just here's what you need to do when you show up for an interview. Put your cell phone away. <laughs> just things <laughs> like that. After you get a job, here's some advice. Don't cook broccoli or fish in the microwave because they won't oh, like it. Oh, so. jeez, or popcorn and burn the <laughs> office down. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's. Uh, I was able to really write the book based on coming from two positions, what I think young people need to hear and then what I think employers want to see. Mm. So tell me a little bit about that. When it comes to what employers want to see, what would you say is paramount for job seekers who are entering the workforce for the first time? What should they know about what employers want to see? Well, it, it boils down to a lot of things that when I, when I observe people, talk to people, interview people actually, especially when I have a chance to go into senior management as a consultant, CEOs, sitting down with CEOs and senior vice presidents, what are you looking for with people? What do you want? It, it boils down to some things that are not going to shock you at all. Uh, the first thing that they want is dependability. They want to feel like <laughs> someone is going to be consistent and dependable. And they, they don't like flakiness. They don't like surprises. They, they want to feel like the person I hired is the person I get. I hire you on Friday. You come in on Monday. I want you to be the same person who represented himself or herself in the interview. So they want dependability. They just really want that. Then there, I believe that in an interview, and, and I think this is important, I also believe that likability, and what I hear from people, this is true, likability is an important skill to have because if the interviewer doesn't like you, it doesn't feel like you're going to fit in, you're not going to get past the door. You just aren't because they're not going to recommend you for the job or they're going to start to feel like they don't want to get in trouble for hiring somebody who later is like, wow, why'd you hire that guy? He's no fun to be with. So I think that likability plays in more than people think. 
I think it's likability and dependability. I, the interesting thing, I would love to get your two cents on this, that I've noticed throughout my career, whether it's been somebody fresh out of school or somebody who's been in their career a long time, there's a fine line because if you get somebody who's you know, the most likable person in the whole wide world, but they're not a quick enough learner or not able to execute what they need, that's one problem. But I find people prefer that to the alternative, which is somebody with the best skills you've ever come across, but who's just not a likable person. Somebody recently called it the beer test, which you want to sit down and have a <laughs> beer or a glass of wine with he or she. But it's it's finding that the skills times the attitude is what I've always said kind of equals the employability to mm -hmm. you. What have you seen, especially with the younger workers who are coming into the workforce, how much does it play that they're actually willing to do the job? Because you get some of these people who are taught that likability is so important and yet other things may fall away as far as importance and then they aren't able to perform. Does that impact any of the young job seekers you see in the market today? Definitely. It, it definitely impacts it for a, in a couple of different directions. I, I think that it's, it's almost like we call it resting on your laurels. <laughs> that, <laughs> right. that, it's just a, a phrase, you know, that says, wow, I'm a cool person, or I, I'm going to just get along with everybody, or I'm, I'm people are going to just be wowed by my dazzling personality, so maybe I don't have to know what it takes to do the job. And that's definitely not true. <laughs> We're, I think that what happens is that it, it, I guess we could say that it's a tiered, audition so that we have to like you enough to let you go in to the company to to get into the company but then performance comes about immediately you've really got to be able to perform people will give you you know a few weeks a month it, it, i also tell young people don't come in acting like you know everything because you don't and and there's definitely that ramp up period that all of your supervisors are going to expect you to have and that's the time when you ask questions you also take notes if you need to you learn it as you go uh, and you, you show that you are willing to learn and that you want to learn and that you can master the job. So it's likeability will get you in the door, but performance is what lets you keep your job. And I don't oh, know I very that. many employers. Well, I think it's just true. I don't think a lot of employers are going to let you be the goofy, likable person who doesn't know the job. It's not going to work. So. Yeah, I think that's so true and so important. So how do you, say you're a job seeker for any of our listeners out there who are maybe fresh out of school, be it high school, college, a master's, whatever sort of program they might have graduated from, how mm -hmm. do they even begin to identify what their passions are and to go after a job that's in line with those passions? Well, there are several steps that I, I usually talk to people about, and one of them is that when you're trying to think about your passion, a good place to start is to ask yourself, when am I really just so happy? What, what do I really, like when I get so involved doing something that I love that the time goes by, I don't even remember how long I've spent doing something, or even you, you run back to that thing and you do it when you're not supposed to be doing it, like, like how we, <laughs> we think we should be doing the dishes, but we run off and we have to go do this other thing, or we think we should be you know, tidying up our offices, but we run off because we just can't get enough of the garden. Those sorts of things point toward your passion. If you just, are, just love doing them and you and you, you can't wait to get back to them, and you lose yourself in them, that points toward passion. It doesn't always point toward a job, because sometimes <laughs> your passion doesn't match up. <laughs> like, I can't get a job gardening. I love to garden. That was a real I'm example. sure you could. I don't believe it can't. So I think there's a job out there for you, Denise. <laughs> I think maybe I should try. <laughs> Luckily, I love what I do for a living even more than gardening, so I'm, I'm lucky. But, uh, but, you know, looking toward what you love, what, what really just, 
trips your trigger is a, a good place to start. I also tell people, though, that another way to, to, to do this is to find out, think about what do other people give you positive attention for? Because mm -hmm. if people say, wow, you are so good at, you're just so good when you got up and made that speech, or you are just really organized. I can't believe how you organized that whole report right away, or just whatever. You're, you're so quick with math. You just figured all that out while we were driving. And so it, a lot of times people have a skill that they don't necessarily think is their passion. They're just so darn good at it that they do it naturally. And that often can become your passion as well. However, there's a third thing that's really important, and it's, it's something that we don't necessarily think about, and that is that finding your passion is also learnable. And that passion, what we would call passion, is honestly a learned response to a stimulus. So I, I learn to feel passionate about things. I, I learn to get excited about things, and it doesn't necessarily come naturally, and it doesn't necessarily that feeling doesn't necessarily attach itself immediately to the thing that I might end up becoming passionate about. Uh, it's also why I tell people to go out and play. Go do the thing that you love. Go do the thing if it's skiing or walking or visiting with friends or whatever it is you love, go do it and think about what it feels like while you're just really in it and you love it and it helps you to figure out how to recognize passion in other environments. I think that's great advice. I haven't actually heard of that take on it. I think it's so important to know your values because it becomes very clear in an unfortunate sort of way when a company or whoever you might work for, when their values don't align with your own, but it takes you knowing yourself. And I think, I know for me, when I was in my early 20s, I didn't know my head from my bum. <laughs> you know, I didn't mm -hmm, know sure. <laughs> who I was or what I wanted. And, you know, I was just out there kind of flailing and hoping to catch my eye on something. And in my case, much like you, I fell into recruiting, which I absolutely adore, as well as public speaking, which I love. But mm -hmm. I think so many people don't even know how to take that first step. And I think evaluating your own values, like who do you know yourself to be can be a great first step, like you said, before you ever set foot in that office of your first employer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just knowing as much as you can about yourself and what you like and what you don't like and who you are and, and, and just your ethics, your values, what really makes you sing. Also what you don't like. There are a lot of times, you know, there are things that we don't tolerate well. So it could be that you don't like a lot of noise. It could be that you're not a morning person. It, it could be that you don't work well around people or that you work only well around people and in a room by yourself would make you feel lonely or isolated. It's any of those bits of information that you can have about yourself and really know about yourself help you to narrow down the, the job market and figure out where you would really sing well. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And so I know a big portion of your book that we talked about is about interviewing. It's so important first impression. So A, if you're a job seeker walking into an interview, how can you make a great first impression? Well, the, one of the things that I've been doing a lot on television recently, actually doing uh, television demos, has to do with one of the first things that happens when you meet someone, and that is the handshake. And I believe, I've been teaching handshaking to I don't know how many thousands and thousands of people for a long time, adult learners and young people, young people in high school and college age, because the, the handshake is this crazy complex thing that people don't <laughs> think about. It's, it's, uh, we, we tend to think the first impression starts after we've done the quick little handshake, but it starts right there. There's, we know a lot about first impressions. There's a lot of research on it. And there's a, 
there's a one second first impression, which is not the handshake. It has to do with the, that flicker of eye contact that we make with each other. Believe it or not, there really is a one second first impression. And it's that wow. moment where we look at each other and we sort of size up. Do you look like you're, you're one of my peeps or not? <laughs> and, uh, and so there's oh that God. one. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting evidence on, on that, that quick flicker of a first impression. In fact, I'm glad to talk about facial expression in a second because facial expression is really important. But, but to talk about the handshake, in a handshake, that's the second thing that really happens when we're meeting someone. There are three things that are happening. It's tactile because we're going to touch each other. It's going to be auditory because I'm saying my name. It's the first time you're going to hear my voice. And it's visual. You're looking at me. And mm. so th it's a complex interaction, and it really is the way that we as human animals, in a sense, are greeting each other. If you think about dogs or, or horses or any other animals you observe, when they meet each other, they do some kind of a little ritual. And in our society, it's a handshake. So handshakes are, are one of those things that I think people need to get under control and make powerful. And because it does involve so many different things at once, it involves eye contact, facial expression, it involves me touching you, it involves me getting in and, and getting into your hand and actually going hand to hand, closing the hand, doing the shake, the pump, we call it, the pump. <laughs> uh, and it's actually called the pump. When it's, it's a very complex thing, and each one of those aspects of a handshake is communicating something about you. So what I like to tell people is when you're engaging in a complex thing like a handshake, why would you not want to make every single component work for you to the best of your ability? Hmm. I didn't know they were that complicated. I mean, again, I've <laughs> talked about handshakes in many talks I've done, but I never really thought of all those little subtleties that go into a handshake. And I know for me, the one that kills everybody is the dead fish handshake, oh, yes. which, which is worse is like the dead fish or the, uh, uh, the bone crusher handshake. Exactly. That's literally what I call both of those, the dead fish and the bone crusher. It must be, we all use the same vernacular because you just, you don't want those. And, and, you know, when you get the bone crusher, you just feel like, oh, please, they were like, go of me. And yeah, we never want <laughs> Yeah, please don't let me go. And we don't want a handshake to be a negative experience. And the, the dead fish thing, or somebody who only takes your, their fingers, you know, and, and, and kind of give you their little fingers, it just feels very not connected. It just feels like we didn't execute a connection there. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I know you said something that I want to make sure we touch on. You talked about facial expressions. I know that yes. there's so much research done on body language and let alone the facial expressions that we do or don't put on our face. Any thoughts you have on that, on what to look for, to watch out for on yourself? I definitely have some opinions on that because, it, again, it's something that I really I really think is important to help people learn. And so there's a lot of a lot of research on facial expressions, as you probably know, and we know a couple of things about it, that when you first approach or walk up to or see someone you haven't met before, and this isn't necessarily when I'm walking into the job interview, this could be me walking down the hallway of a hotel or walking down the street, as I look at someone I've never seen before, what we want to have on our face is what's technically called a neutral toward positive open facial expression. That's what we call what? it as psychologists. <laughs> Tell me you're <laughs> kidding. You Way too complicated. Yeah. I, you know what? Behavioral psych I'm a behavioral psychologist. We have all these bizarre words. For so we say neutral toward positive. So if, the, if your facial expression could be on a continuum and over way here on the right is me winning the lottery and over here me on the left is I just wrecked my car. 
So in the middle would be neutral. <laughs> so we want to skew it a little bit toward positive. So I want it to be okay. neutral toward positive and then also open. We call it an open facial expression, meaning that I don't appear closed or that I'm closed off from you. Um, the way I like to explain it sometimes is pretend that you got lost in Seattle or whatever city you're not familiar with or New Orleans or wherever you haven't been and you don't have your handy GPS on your iPhone. So now you've got to ask a stranger how to get back to your hotel. Oh who are you going to pick? <laughs> you're not going to pick someone who's scowling. You're also not going to pick someone who's smiling weirdly because that's not really cool either. It's, it looks a little too bizarre if you're smiling too quickly. You're going to look, at some, look for someone who looks open to you, who looks like they might be willing to help you. So that's the facial expression we really want to have when we first approach people or first meet people. But then we want to quickly move to a smile. And there's so much evidence on smiling, just it's fun, fun, fun research on smiling. And it, it, the research is all consistent. It says that a smile is a very important thing to have. A lot of people don't want to smile because they either don't like their teeth or they don't, you know, somehow they don't like the way their smile looks. And I always tell people, you know, make peace with your smile because <laughs> the most beautiful smiles I've ever seen in my life have had nothing to do with dental work. They've had to do with where the smile was coming from. And, uh, and the smiling is not just to, you know, because smiling is fun or it looks like you're a nice person. There is evidence that says that when you smile, you look more friendly, more approachable. That's pretty obvious. But get this. People also rate smiling people as more intelligent. Really? So, yeah, intelligence comes into it. And then the other nice thing about smiling is that smiling does all kinds of good things for your body. So there's a cascade of of chemical fireworks that are that are set off simply by smiling within your own body. So what happens is that there are neurotransmitters called serotonin. We've probably heard of serotonin. And when when you smile, the muscles in your face, your brain actually notices. This is just such amazing research. Your brain actually notices that your facial muscles are moving into a smile and it releases these neurotransmitters because and, and they're the feel-good transmitters. So That's it actually amazing. makes you calmer. Isn't that crazy? It, uh, it makes you feel calmer. It lowers your blood pressure. It actually lowers body temperature. It, it makes you feel better when you smile. And the more you smile, the more of them are released. So it's, it's just an amazing thing. If you can smile, you can actually calm yourself down a little bit and, and be more approachable at the same time. I so agree with what you're saying. I got really hard feedback to hear early on in my career is that I had, I'm, I'm sure you probably, unfortunately may have heard of this term, RBF. Do you know that term? Yes, yes I have. <laughs> for, for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, luckily I don't think we're FCC regulated, but it's yes. uh, uh, a resting, yeah. resting bitch face is what they call it. And I had that. I mean, I had it in spades. And so I had colleagues, I had people who would meet me for the first time, and these poor job seekers would come in to meet with me, and they said that I just looked like frightening. They were terrified. So nobody could even interview with me when I used to first start interviewing job seekers because I had RBF. And after years <laughs> of feedback that consistently said I had RBF, I had to go out and completely change my approach, and I did exactly what you suggested. I smiled. I looked approachable, like the, you know, the exact person mm -hmm. you want to ask in a city, which I get asked a lot. <laughs> and then I smile in an approachable way. And people nowadays, when I share that story, they say, Jen, that's impossible. You're just the loveliest, most approachable person. And I say, oh my gosh, just ask my husband, my friends, the massage therapist I used to go to. <laughs> it's everybody <laughs> concurred that I had RBF in a very bad sort of way. Oh, <laughs> Chronic so funny. RBF. 
though. Well, that's a great story, though, that it, that it actually did change things around, and it and it can. Just developing that smile will. I've had other people tell me that same thing that once I learned to smile and look approachable, things opened <laughs> up for me. <laughs> it sounds so silly, and at networking events too. That was the other thing is I feel like whether or not we're talking about a job hunting situation or in any sort of social situation where you have an opportunity to network with other people, if you don't mm-hmm. have that level of approachability, you'll notice yourself kind of standing in a corner or like I used to, unfortunately, accosting people unnecessarily because, you know, people, again, were trying to give me a wide berth. It was like Moses parting the Red Sea because of my RBF syndrome. But um, but all kidding aside, I mean, it just makes people want to be around you more. And I think there's yeah. also the more internal work you've done, and I'm sure as a cognitive behavioral specialist, you could probably say more about this. But smiling is one step physically you could take. But then I would go so far as to say that doing the internal work on yourself to actually love yourself and feel comfortable with yourself, especially when you're first starting off in your career, can make all the difference in the world so that it actually becomes an ontological thing where who you're being shifts. And yes, the smile releases the serotonin, which leads to more happiness, but you're actually generating your own satisfaction. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's beautifully said, Jen. It's beautifully said because it would be, you know, it is, it's kind of a fake until you make it thing. So smiling is better than not smiling. I mean, certainly, even if you didn't feel like smiling, smiling would be a a better thing than not. However, if you can develop the internal love for yourself and and just that self-acceptance and also a positive sense that, you know, I am me and I should smile because people will like me and people will hire me and People will talk to me at this conference. If you can kind of come from an internal position like that, it creates so much more power and internal power within you. And that internal power is palpable in the people who meet you. People can tell whether you really are comfortable with yourself or not, I believe. So anything people can do to cultivate that is a great idea. Yeah, one of my mentors, Alison Armstrong, a topic that we're studying right now has to do with space. And in it, we're talking about how the brain, the human animal side of us longs Mm -hmm. to connect with people. But it doesn't matter if it's authentic or not. It just wants to connect to be related. And so most of us spend 80, 90 percent of our lives engaging in these inauthentic, not real based in anything other than shallow relatedness. And yet what we really long for, what our soul or spiritual side longs for is an actual connection with another human being. But we can't get there until we can authentically create that partnership with someone. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I could I could talk about that as a separate topic. For we could, hours. we have to have you on, a, on another show. Just to talk <laughs> it's, about so, that. it's absolutely everything you're saying is absolutely true, and it completely resonates with what I believe and what I teach. That you've just you just have to you know when we finally get around to it, we can do all kinds of work with how do you look, how do you walk, what are you going to wear, are you going to bring right. your resume in, what you you know we do all that stuff because that's the stuff that I could get to in a book, you know, and, and that's the stuff that we can teach if I'm teaching 200 people in a room. But sooner or later, each one of us as individuals, I believe, if we're serious about our journeys, not just the job we're going to get, but our journeys in life, who will we know and who will we love and, and who, you know, who, who will we connect with on a meaningful level? That those are important questions, and, and I believe they can be answered, I'm going to say, only by knowing ourselves and exploring ourselves. So true. Well, I know that in your book, I think you talk about the seven communication components that are really mm-hmm. important. Can you tell yes. our listeners about a few of those? Absolutely. They're the, I, I like to, when I think about us, any of us walking around presenting, whether we're going to a job interview or a 
a party or just chatting with friends, whatever, there are really seven communication components that make up who we are. And a couple of them I've already mentioned. The first one is actually our facial expression. What is our face doing? And facial expression is the visual part of our presentation, so to speak. It's the first thing people see with us, which is why it's important to have that neutral to positive open facial expression <laughs> when we first meet somebody. A lot of words. <laughs> but uh, so facial expression is one of them and making sure that we look interested while someone is talking so that we do things that make people know that we are with them. That is how our faces communicate that I'm with you when I'm not talking. If I'm the, the listener for a moment, then I really have to rely upon facial expression to give you feedback that you're on target or that I didn't understand what you were saying or to give you the energy to keep going. If you've ever talked to somebody where they just are sitting there staring at you blankly and not <laughs> giving anything back, you run out, at least I, run out of energy. It's like, whoa, okay, are you with me and am I boring? And so we want to try to encourage people to keep talking, to keep interacting through facial expression that looks interested, look interested. Eye contact is the second one. So we have facial, facial expression, then eye contact. Eye contact is a really important way to communicate with people, and there are certain guidelines for eye contact. When we, when we do eye contact, we want to make sure that we are looking at the person we're talking to or listening to mostly, and that we break eye contact just a tiny little bit. A flicker of a break, mostly we maintain eye contact. Usually I do a segment on eye contact because some people are very afraid of eye contact and they don't make really good eye contact. It's, it's an important thing to try to develop it if, if at all possible and to learn that skill of looking and then looking away a little bit looking, looking away a little bit. Sometimes people ask, well, where do I look? Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Just look away for a second and then come back. It's, uh, it doesn't matter if you look up or down or out. or uh, Just do a look, look away and then look back. If you don't look away, what happens is one of two things. People who make eye contact and don't break it fall into one of two categories in the world. Unless you're, <laughs> well, unless you're a crazy person. A crazy person would make eye contact in another kind of way, too. But in terms of the, the world out here we're going to encounter, two people make eye contact and don't break it. One is aggressive people, people who are trying mm -hmm. to overpower you or dominate you. And the other is lovers. So because wow. lovers, I mean, <laughs> you know how that works. You, know, you just stare into the other person's eyes, and you, you don't break eye contact, and you walk down the street holding hands, looking at each other, hoping you don't fall in a pothole or something as you walk. It's just, and, and the reason for that is because it's an energy thing. You're exchanging energy, and you don't want to break that energy. But if you don't want to look like you're in love with someone or that you're aggressing against them, you break it a little, keep it mostly. That's the guideline for eye contact. Eye contact. The next one is posture, what you do with your posture. And, of course, if we were on television, we'd talk about posture. I can describe it on radio. We want to make sure that when we are addressing people, the most very powerful form of posture is, of course, shoulders back and, and straight. But we want our feet, whether we're men or women, slightly apart because it looks architecturally strong. A lot mm. of times people stand with their feet close together, and it looks in a certain way like you're going to topple over because it doesn't mm. look architecturally powerful. So feet slightly apart and facing the person you're talking to directly on rather than at an angle. Uh, that flies in the face if we're listening, if, if any older people are listening, especially older females in the category over about 65 or so. If there's anybody out there listening, a lot of that group of women got taught to stand in what was called model's pose. And hmm. model's pose was standing slightly sideways so that it presented <laughs> a slender angle to your body. Oh! 
So we don't want to do that because it doesn't look powerful. It looks unpowerful, actually. So posture is straight on. The next one is our use of hands, what we do with our hands. And, of course, handshaking falls into that, but also handshaking, I mean, hand gestures have to do with how we come across to other people. Not using our hands whatsoever makes us seem stiff and rigid. And it makes us feel like, like it makes me think that the other person is, is either afraid or reluctant to share. So using hands naturally is really important, and it furthers the message. So those first four are the visual components of you, of who you are. And, and those are the things that become, if you, were a, if you were a silent movie, those would be the only things you had to communicate with, would be those four. The second three are the auditory portion. So if you were a radio, you would have voice tone, and voice tone has to do with, with the sound of our voices, how our voices are. And the, the quick little tip there is that men and women both generally are using a, a basically a voice tone that is about a half an octave higher than their normal voice tone would be if they worked on it. Uh, and we want to make sure that we keep our voice tone in the lower ranges. Lower ranges are the powerful, assertive ranges. And, and also, speaking to women, women listeners for a moment, Women have something, here's another fun thing, called a widely varying intonational pitch pattern. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. We have one. We have that. And we actually have four pitch patterns where men have only three. Men have three, and, and the men are the lower pitch patterns. Women have a fourth pitch pattern that is good for only us, and we don't use it indiscriminately. We use it only when we're expressing surprise or excitement. And we all know what it sounds like. It sounds like, hi. How are you? And we go really, really high with our voices, except that's not a powerful sound. And so we save it for our girlfriends when we're going out and having a glass of wine, but we don't use it when we're trying to appear powerful in a meeting or a job interview. So voice tone, voice loudness, the thing I can say about voice loudness that surprises people sometimes is that, of course, you need to be as loud as you need to be for everyone to hear you. If that's three people or 300 people, it's your responsibility to make sure that you are loud enough. It's not their responsibility to listen harder. It's your responsibility to talk louder. And so when you pick up feedback from either three or 300 people that they're leaning forward, they're trying to stick their ears out or put their hair behind their ears and, and hear you, that means you've got to talk louder. It's your responsibility. And then the final seventh communication component is actual verbal content, the words you're choosing. And in a, in a longer session, we would be talking about ways to eliminate things that take away your personal power. Those are things like fillers, like um, uh, okay, you know, things that people use when they're trying to think about what this the way our personal power, and we want to do our best to eliminate those. Yeah, I think those are some wonderful tips that you gave, because I know I've seen on my end over the years so many times people will have these weird idiosyncrasies that they don't even realize until you pointed out to them. There was a gentleman mm -hmm. who is an executive up for a director level position at a corporation, an amazing guy. He had everything else you said nailed down, but mm -hmm. he did the strangest thing. 
whenever he went to make a point, he would raise his eyebrows. And so he, I, can you imagine that? Here you have this executive, very amazing guy, already sold one company, and he would raise his eyebrows every time he went to make a point and had no idea in his whole adult life that he had been doing that. And so he had to work on it for probably a good 48 hours before he went in for his first and then his second and third interviews. And finally, he got it under control. And he said, Jennifer, I never noticed that before. It made such a huge difference. And wow. The other one I see, I just had a woman last week I was interviewing. Some people will tilt their head to the right or the left. Yes. And they'll they'll do the head kind of nod or the every time they say something, they'll nod or they'll nod to everything you say. And you wind mm-hmm. up with kind of the bobblehead effect, which mm-hmm. again makes it extremely hard to take people seriously. It is. It's distracting. You're absolutely right. And people don't know... So you, so you were able to deliver that feedback to the man and the woman. You were able to just say, here's what you're doing. Yeah, and then I, yeah, yeah, that's what I, that's what I do. I wish I had a recording studio set up because I know I've seen the difference that it makes. Like you said, when you're on camera or on Mm -hmm. television, that's how I learned about my own over gesticulating hands after seeing one too many television interviews (laughs) where my PR guy said, Jen, please stop using your hands in the picture frame. It's driving the producers nuts, but don't realize it until somebody calls you out on it, which I think is why it's so important to work with people like you or coaches or experts who can help define find those little subtleties that you might not know that you do. Yes, it's true. And that, and that coaching really does work. And I do that same kind of coaching where I'll get hired by someone to just the likability thing. Like, I don't think people like me. What am I doing? And, or, you know, I, I'm not nailing these interviews. I'm not, you know, a lot of times senior execs, it's a pretty tough interview process and, and I'll sit down with them and really try to assess all that. It does help by the way, to record yourself, uh, either auditorily or visually, because you can pick up on a lot of those things, like head tilting. Head tilting is a way that we as females, by the way, it's another one of those things that gives away our power. If we're trying to look assertive and powerful, and I, I'm talk, when I say power, I mean internal power. I don't mean power over people or anything like that. I just mean internally powerful. We give away our power and we tilt our head, and it's a very typical female thing that we do, and, and it comes from wanting to appear demure, to, to sort of defer, things that we don't want to do when we are actually trying to land a job or, or be in a corporate office. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's to be able to observe those things and to correct them is really important. Yeah, I think it's like anything. It's just realizing what you don't know, you don't know, and bringing awareness and consciousness Mm -hmm. to it and then starting to work on it. And one Mm -hmm. thing I know that might be going through some of the listeners that I would be thinking listening to the show is what do you do if the person who's interviewing you either has RBF or is, you know, (laughs) coming across in some sort of weird way or the person interviewing you gives you a dead fish or the bone cruncher handshake? How do you keep your composure or do you decide that's not even a company that you want to work for? Ooh, that's a good, I like your second question because <laughs> I was <laughs> I was about to say, well, you know, a lot of, we just encounter all sorts of people in, in life and, and I was, and basically what I say is really don't let people throw you off. You just make sure that you're so practiced and you're so ready and that you've got your list of questions when you go in or that you've got your resume there, whatever it is you're doing and that you've researched the company that you don't get thrown off in the interview. Unfortunately, you know, I've, I have a lot of former students, by the way, who have gone to work for Apple and Google and, and Yahoo and a lot of the big guys uh, just because of, of where I have worked with students in business schools. And, and unfortunately, and, and I don't have to name any of these companies, it's not necessarily the ones I just named, but there are some companies, and, and I don't 
really like this practice. I, I don't approve of it, but now I'm hearing from students who've gone off to do interviews that sometimes you are deliberately thrown off by being asked a question mm. that is unsolvable, literally an unsolvable question. Here's this question, here's this this problem, work out the puzzle, and I'll be back in 15 minutes to see what your answer is. And it is literally unsolvable just to see what will happen to you when you encounter something unsolvable. Or someone who is just deadpan and doesn't give you back any encouraging feedback with their facial expression just to see how you handle it. I think that's technically aggressive, and I don't think it's, and I don't think anyone should ever be aggressive. I think we should be assertive and honest and open. But I do like to warn people who are going on job interviews you can find any myriad things that are not going to not make you happy, I guess. You're not going not to enjoy the interview, but just soldier on through it and, and get through the interview and just don't let them throw you off. But I think your other question is a better one, which is if you learned that they deliberately were doing that just to sort of make life hard on you, would you want to work there? I think that's a good question. And, of course, I can't answer it for other people. I can answer it for myself. I prefer open, loving environments because I believe that I believe we can be very successful and and produce work that's excellent without being bullied. That's what I believe. Oh, well, Denise, I, we have to have you on the show again because you've given our listeners so much food for thought. And I know there's topics we didn't even get a chance to get into from your book, uh, your book, Work It. So please remind our listeners again, where can they find more information on you, on your company, on where to buy your book? Where would they do that? Oh, thanks for that opportunity to mention that. So uh, my website is denisemdodley.com, Denise, D-E-N-I-S-E-M, Dudley, D-U-D-L-E-Y.com. And the book is available on Amazon. It's available in print and Kindle versions. And so you can find it online. If you just if you go to Amazon, just type in Denise Dudley. That's the quickest way to get to it because there are some other things called Work It. Literally hairspray. <laughs> there's hair, I actually use Work It hairspray, <laughs> but oh there's, which is not why I named my book Work It. <laughs> but uh, there's, a, there's another book, I believe, called Work It, and it's an exercise book. So easier to just type in Denise Dudley. It'll come up on Amazon. That's the easiest way to buy it. And, uh, and by the way, I'm donating all of my royalties to youth organization programs. So um, oh. I decided that I'm going to give it away. So I just, I, I'd really just, it's time for me to start giving back. And, and I'm in a position to be able to do that. And I want to do that for young people. Just think, oh. I just adore the young people I work with. That's amazing. Well, if you ever want to join us, we're building our first school in Nepal using a portion of our proceeds later this year in November with Build On. So nice. would love to have you there. If you get the itch to join us in Nepal and pick up a shovel, please come join us Thank there. you. Thank you for that. And it's been a pleasure. I've had so much fun with you, Jennifer. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you on the show, Denise. And a happy 4th of July to everybody. Please be safe out there. Enjoy the fireworks tonight or tomorrow night. And join us next week as a dear friend of mine, Danny Swan, who made it as a actress, as a dancer, as a top model, and now an uh, animation person. She, I think, has her first animation movie coming out later this year, and she does movement capture. So she'll be joining us on the show next week to talk about her journey from being a top model in Paris to how she created her own thriving business here in the United States. So tune in next week for the show with Danny Swan, and as always, you can find any of the episodes you may have missed on Get Yourself the Job on Facebook. We post any episodes there or on the Get Yourself the Job archives on LA Talk Radio website or on iTunes. And we always invite you to please share feedback with us. And thank you as always for tuning in. So happy 4th of July and thank you so much for joining us, Denise. 
Thank you so much. Take good care. You too. Take care. You're listening to Get Yourself the Job with Jennifer Hill only on LA Talk Radio. 